Um, let me add my, my thanks to, to Lotfi and, and uh, the organizers and everybody. Um, this is um, always a, a, a treat uh, to come uh, to, this, to these meetings and, and uh, um, at the end of this uh, fantastic session, it's a, it's a challenge to come up with, with a really good batting uh, approach, particularly when you don't like baseball. Um, <laughs> you know, a penalty kick, sort of, you know, last second kind of goal would be, would be more appropriate. Anyway, um, I'll try. So um, let me start off with this. Um, the question is simple, what do you see? Um, I can't hear you. <laughs> a person walking. Well, do you really see a person walking? I mean, you, you see a person walking, presuma presumably that's true. You saw the person walking. However, your brain saw white dots on a screen. Isn't that the case? Um, or, or are we thinking about this wrong? So, so I think part of what we've been talking about is, is the fact that um, oftentimes we perceive the world and think of it or have a, a feeling that there is something different floating up there, some cloud of smoke that allows us to capture objects, uh, capture reality, um, and that we have this introspective feeling must be different than some biology going on in the brain. And um, I think what we're learning is that that's not so, that the, um, you know, the, the separation of this mind versus brain is, a, is an artificial construct probably of our own brain, um, sophisticated as it is, um, to provide opportunities for um, neuroscientists and philosophers alike to, to try to address things that artists have long known. Um, that if you actually put something up uh, uh, that is artistically pleasing, it evokes perceptions in every person that experiences it that is in itself a work, of art, a, a work of art and in itself different from what the artist first intended. You cannot read a poem, you cannot look at a painting and experience exactly the same thing that the artist meant you to experience. You experience your own experience of, of it. Um, and that is evoked by that pattern of dot on the screen, and arguably each one of us saw a slightly different person walking. So that's what I want to tell you about. Uh, can we actually demonstrate that this very blunt sort of statement is actually true? Um, well, we can start approaching these questions. You can take per people and put them in the MRI scanner, which is the machine that you see there, um, and you can play them these little dots, uh, hopefully all of you are seeing different, the ones that are seeing, uh, different uh, patterns of dots uh, moving, but giving rise to specific biological motions, people jumping, jacks, uh, walking, uh, throwing a baseball, and so forth. Whereas if we scramble the dots slightly more, then you're still seeing dots, they're still moving in a very similar way, in fact, exactly the same pattern of motion, um, but you're not seeing actions for the most part. Even though your brain tries really hard to see them, and hopefully if we play them enough, you start seeing these fragments of actions, and if we kept going, you might actually come up with stories for it. Emily Grossman uh, did this uh, study as part of her thesis with uh, uh, Blake, and, and uh, what she found was that, in fact, 
when you compare random dots with biological motion, in both cases you're seeing patterns of dots. Um, when you subtract the brain activity one from the other, what you get is little islands of activity uh, along this uh, superior temporal sulcus uh, region, um, a specific part of, of the brain, uh, lateralized to one side as it turns out. So it seems that when you're perceiving this, this person um, walking or doing some actions and interpreting the patterns of dots, it, that's going on in your brain. Um, there is activity in your brain related to that. But you could say, well, that's because my mind is seeing the person and sending a message to my brain to activate specific areas so that I can tell you I'm seeing a person, for example. Um, so the problem with brain imaging oftentimes is that it doesn't allow us to make sure that we actually need the activity in that part of the brain to do what we say we're doing, right? So you're seeing the person, but are you actually seeing it with the activity in, in any one of those areas? So Lorella Batelli partnered up with uh, um, Emily um, and uh, Grossman, and what they did was use brain stimulation techniques, transcranial magnetic stimulation, guided by the person's own fMRI to block the area. As uh, Prabhambo was saying a moment ago, um, serendipity of nature is a wonderful thing for people like uh, me. Um, if you happen to find a patient that has a lesion in that particular area, you can borrow their disease, as it were, um, and, uh, and study, um, study the, the underlying questions that you're interested in. Um, but serendipity of nature is, for the most part, fortunately, rare. For, for patients uh, like this. When neurologists like myself say this was a great patient, oftentimes it's a really bad thing for the patient. Um, and and uh, the advantage of these brain simulation techniques is that it allows you to virtually create a quote-unquote lesion temporarily, shut off the part of the brain for just a little bit, for just certain amounts, which we control, and uh, ask the question, what happens if you actually don't have the access to that part of the brain, the computation you can do? Well, what uh, Lorella and, and uh, Emily found is that when you shut off this superior temporal sulcus area uh, that you see um, um, highlighted here, um, the person is still able to see the scrambling dots, still able to tell how many dots there are, but doesn't see the person walking. You haven't rendered them blind, you've only rendered them blind for biological motion. In fact, so much so is the specificity of the effect that if you shut off the area that normally processes motion, so that you are actually not quite as able to see the moving dots, you see dots, but you don't capture their movement, in as much as you capture their movement, you're able to interpret the biological motion that they represent suggesting that, that while these areas of seeing moving objects versus interpreting second-order interpretation of, of what you're seeing and, and coming up with the, with the person walking uh, um, explanation, that these are, in fact, selected areas that closely work together, but that, that we can identify and separately interfere with. So, your brain sees the dots but it actually is also your brain that sees the person walking. 
So presumably what that means is that the mind is the product of the brain. Now, it turns out that we're fortunate enough to have such a highly specialized brain that we're not only able to see these changing interpretations and make them, um, we're also able to cope with a world that is very complex. As we heard about, there is a lot of overlapping equivocal um, images, there is challenges in navigation, there is uh, all kinds of, of interaction between senses and so forth. Um, there's also um, the fortunate fact that, that we are endowed with this complex uh, specialized brain thanks to genetics. And even if later on we become able to confront the, the world, um, we're able to understand it. However, the world is changing extremely rapidly. In fact, much faster than genetic change is able to uh, cope with the, with the challenges that it faces. We, we have learned that um, there are the possibilities of what we call epigenetic factors where environment changes modify genetic expression. But even that is too slow. The brain the, has to confront a changing world at a speed that it can't possibly foresee. Um, my um, you know, first challenge, um, and it was a difficult one to connect with what Barbara was, was saying, was to create a map of my actions that I could actually find the M in the, in the keyboard. Um, and uh, lo and behold, my kids now don't use the fingers to type, they use the thumbs, and even that is now passé. Um, and uh, so how does our brain change these representations so incredibly fast? It cannot be through genetic modification, that's too slow. Um, so here's where I think one can start thinking of this concept of plasticity that Lotfi was introducing at the beginning. Um, you can think of plasticity as nature's invention to overcome the limitations of the genome. Genes are too slow to cope with a world that, that uh, demands changes more rapidly. Plasticity enables us to do that. However, it's a double-edged sword because a change in the brain cannot be undone. You cannot reverse the change. You can introduce new changes and so therefore there's a reason of hope. You can introduce new changes, you can guide them, you can maybe overcome difficulties. But plasticity becomes also the cause of disease or persistent disability. Part of the reason why the kids that so, so dramatically um, we were seeing from, from um, Prabhan's, uh, pra Prakash's study, um, project Prakash, sorry, um, are not able to see initially I would argue, I'm sure you, you would agree, is because of plasticity. That's what causes the, the, the uh, lasting deficit when sight is, is restored. The brain has changed, presumably, because of sight. But at the same time, it offers the opportunity, plasticity does, for new changes to take place so that the disability then becomes overcome in a different way. They are literally seeing not like a sighted person from birth is seeing, but in a different manner. The challenge is how can we identify those differences to maximize the benefit? How can we design strategies to overcome the challenges uh, for, for each individual person? Nature is quite capable of doing it, um, as we've seen a moment ago. This is a, another example of that. This is a picture from David Seymour that hangs in the Corcoran Gallery of Art here in, in, in Washington, D.C. 
of a blind boy uh, who had uh, learned to read Braille um, and then in uh, uh, World War um, II um, lost uh, both arms. He then um, became able to read Braille with his lips, which is what you see him doing there. It's not exactly what uh, instructors for the blind generally encourage patients to, uh, subjects to do, um, but, uh, but it functions, it worked for him. In fact, he was able to read faster, ultimately, than with the fingertips. Turns out lips actually have higher receptor densities for, for tactile processing. So there is actually some, some advantage to that if you could only um, do it. Now, when you read Braille, um, it, whether with your lips, presumably, or certainly with your fingers, you activate as a blind person, even as a congenitally blind person, not only the somatosensory cortex, the part of the brain that processes touch, but you also activate the visual cortex, the part of the uh, brain that normally is used for seeing by sighted people. That's what you see here in a PET study from um, um, Hiro Sadato. And when you use transcranial magnetic stimulation to block that visual cortex, then early blind subjects become unable to read Braille. They, they become blind for Braille, um, transiently, just during the time you're blocking it with the transcranial magnetic stimulation. Same thing as, as I, I showed you before. So plasticity apparently takes this this sort of organized map that Ludwig was showing us where certain parts of the brain are devoted to touch processing and certain parts of the brain are devoted to visual processing and reroutes them, rewires them. You lose sight, there is real estate to be had and tactile processing takes over apparently and invades visual cortex. So does that mean that the, the blind see with their fingertips? Turns out it's not only touch, you can do sensory substitution, and you'll hear about it more this afternoon with, from Peter Meyer using a method called the voice where you can convert visual scenes into soundscapes. And uh, these subjects, uh, Pat Fletcher, for example, a very proficient user of this system, tells you that she can hear your voice, but that she can see the objects, meaning she can decode these soundscapes and convert them into something that she perceives as seeing. And as it turns out, when we've studied her um, and others uh, like her, again, there is activity that goes into the visual cortex when she says that she's seeing these soundscapes. So perhaps um, the, the way to think about it is that um, we see and touch and hear with different circuits in the brain uh, that uh, may seem to be separate, but in, in fact, they interact each with each other in a very um, um, close way um, that can be manifest, uh, manifest um, more clearly when you lose one of the senses, but it might also be there all the time. Um, and perhaps when we see, when we perceive something and have the conscious experience our mind tells us we're seeing, what we're really doing is activating our visual cortex. But in order to do that, we never do it just by seeing. We all, meaning just by the eyes. We always have some mix in of touch, of smell, of hearing, and so forth. Um, the senses are interacting in a way that, that even escapes us. And so when you actually um, 
target the visual cortex and evoke the perception of vision, use stimulation to generate a little flash of light, a little phosphine, um, then you can actually start looking at these interactions and show, for example, the following things. Um, imagine that you do brain stimulation and you generate the perception of seeing. The person says, I see a flash of light right here. Um, now imagine you do the stimulation the same spot, but this time, for whatever reason, the person does not see the dot, um, does not see the flash of light. And you compare those two conditions. So in both cases, you're stimulating the brain the same way. In both cases, you can demonstrate a pattern of brain activity by combining this brain stimulation with brain imaging <coughs> techniques, which is what you see here. Um, but when you contrast the two conditions, phosphine yes versus phosphine no, um, which is purely based on the responses of the subject, then all that remains of this brain activity related to brain stimulation is activity in a very small island in the visual cortex. That's what you see here. So when you stimulate the brain for any one thing, you activate one spot and a lot of other areas. When you ask the person, did you see something? And they say yes. And you subtract that activity from when they didn't see something. All that remains is activity in the visual cortex. So it seems that indeed when we feel I've seen something is because there is a particular pattern of activity within the visual cortex that takes place. Now, since the stimulation activates the entire brain, a large network anyway of, of, uh, of activity, it has to be a very complex pattern of interaction between brain areas that ultimately crystallizes back to activity in the visual cortex, and that's what we become aware of. Um, perhaps most dramatically, um, in terms of the interaction of that with the rest of the brain and therefore with the rest of the senses, can be illustrated if you ask subjects to report whether they see a phosphine or not, and at the same time, below their level of awareness, you touch them or you present a sound. So imagine you're sitting there and we apply a stimulus to your visual cortex, a stimulus that is not strong enough for you to even see anything, um, but at the same time, we touch you lightly on the left side, or we play a, a sound that is just below what you would perceive. Whereas it turns out, um, Theodore Ramos did some studies along these lines, um, and uh, to make a very long story short, in the interest of, of time, there is a dramatic effect in these long, long bars you see of, uh, of different time points where if you touch the person on the same side where they would be expected to see something, but you touch them bef below their awareness, all of a the sudden they become aware of seeing. So we see because of activity in the visual cortex ultimately, but that activity is modified by what we feel by touch. And also, as uh, recently uh, Lotvi and uh, Nadia Bolognini have, have shown, by what we hear uh, in space. So if you want to see something here better, you'll do well in having a sound presented in that area. And, this, 
effect is quite specific. If you want to see it here, in the right side of my world, you want to present the sound here. If you present it somewhere else, it won't actually help see here. Arguably, it may make it worse. Um, the same is true for touch. If you want to see something on the right side of your space, you'll do well touching my right side of the body. If you touch my left, it won't actually help me. Um, and that is so even if the touch or the sound I'm unaware of. So, just to wrap it up, um, we see with our brain, we don't see with our eyes, uh, we don't see with our mind, um, but we never purely see. We always see, like we always touch and hear with all of our senses in a strict way. And again, I think this is something that artists have known. Um, artists uh, like Picasso um, said painting is a blind man's profession. Blind people have a clearer vision of reality. And he meant vision. His argument was, if you are sighted, there is so much distraction, not because of the seeing world, but because of the other senses, um, that it is hard to depict what you actually see, because when I look, I'm also hearing, I'm also touching. And, and I think neuroscience allows us to start disentangling this and provide evidence that in fact that perception that seems to come from the mind, from something elsewhere, is actually nothing but the expression of the very high complexity of the human brain. Thank you. <laughs>